Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Over this weekend, I had the opportunity to see it from every direction. In the morning on Saturday, I was refing basketball. In the afternoon, I was coaching basketball, and after that, I was watching as a fan. So I got to see it from every perspective. I refed some games in the morning, and I coached a game in the afternoon, and then I watched Joel's game after that. And it's amazing to look at things from all those different perspectives to see how the power struggles that go on at sporting events happen. You see it from, as an official's perspective, a coach is, is yelling over your shoulder about the rules and you don't know the rules and you've got to enforce the rules and, of course, he knows the rules. Then later on, you see it as a coach and you notice that the ref is not following the rules and I know the rules, so why aren't they following the rules? And then the last of it all is to see it as a fan and when the refs are not seeming to keep control of the game, the fans started to get rather nasty. Now, some of us in these situations are the type of personalities to fight, and we'll fight back, and we'll really get defensive when somebody challenges our own power or authority. Others of us are more passive, and so we'll find maybe a sneaky way to do the same thing We'll try to hide and run away from the problem, but secretly we'll find a backdoor way to stab a person in the back. What happens when these same power struggles that we experience in our daily life now are encountered by God? What happens when human beings caught up in power struggles of the spiritual nature, powers that can't be seen, powers that are satanic enter our lives and God decides it's time to confront those things. In our story today, Jesus gets into a power struggle and the whole church is caught up in it. There's three ways that Jesus teaches us that he has all authority and what it means to let him take charge we see it in the church where he speaks for God. We see it within somebody's own person and soul where Jesus rules for God. And then we see it in the whole surrounding region as the news spreads and people are amazed by God's presence. Turn it on. There. Essentially important to make sure that everyone's hearing what you're saying. <laughs> and with Jesus, he had to be sure that people were not only hearing him, but that they were really listening. In fact, a coach can yell all he wants to, but if he's not being heard by his players, it's fruitless. Coaching is only as effective as a person can actually teach. A coach could be charismatic, really good at attracting people's interest, telling stories, making himself seem like he's really cool. He could be very assertive in letting the kids know that he's upset. 
But if you can't teach a child how to do what you want them to do on the basketball court or baseball fields or in the classroom, it doesn't matter how loud you yell. Jesus is a coach unlike any others. We pick up at verse 21. He enters into Capernaum, a fishing village, and immediately on the Sabbath, the day of prayer, he goes into the synagogue, a place that is like our church, but more than that, a community center for teaching, for courtroom decisions, for community meetings, and for prayer. And on that day of prayer, he begins teaching. And they are astonished at his teaching because he doesn't teach them like they're used to. They're used to the scribes. And the scribes were known for their authority. Their authority in the scriptures, their authority as teachers. And when they would teach, they would often quote the rabbis. To interpret the scriptures, they would take people to the commentaries. The teachers and elders and those who went before them and say, let's see what rabbi such and such says. They would compare those different interpretations and then they'd come to their own teaching. But Jesus doesn't teach them like that. Instead, he is immediate in his teaching. Notice how many times Mark uses the word immediate. It's like over 40 times in this one book, a short gospel. He uses the word immediate, and immediately Jesus is is in the synagogue, and immediately he's confronting the false teaching and false notions, and he's bringing his teaching. He's immediate in three ways. He's immediate because first he wastes no time. How easy is it for us to waste time getting to the point, getting to people that need to hear God's word? getting to prayer. Jesus wastes no time. And secondly, he wastes no energy. He immediately cuts right through all of the stuff the scribes would say as kind of a prelude to their teaching. He cuts through the red tape. The red tape is like a bureaucratic measure That's meant to keep people out that are not supposed to be all the way in. And only certain people can cut the red tape. It comes from this tradition of wrapping important documents in red twine. And only certain individuals can cut that red twine. Well, who can unravel the scriptures? Jesus. He cuts through all the red tape, all the bureaucratic dealings of the synagogue. He cuts through all the traditions of the elders. He doesn't cite any commentaries, and he gets right to the heart of it, which is the third way he's immediately cutting to the heart. He's getting right to where you are at. The power struggles that we face in our lives are happening around us, and they're happening within us. We can often waste time getting to what our real problem is by distracting ourselves with what everybody else is doing or what other somebody else said to us or how somebody else is responsible for what's going on. We can create red tape and make it seem like, well, 
this isn't for me to handle. No, there's somebody else responsible for this job. There's, there's something other religious figure who can open those scriptures and give me the answer. We can keep people at a distance. We can use church language. We can use religious practice to keep people at a distance from Jesus and make it seem like it's just too overwhelming to really deal with all of these problems in people's lives. But Jesus teaches us to be immediately, not to fight, not to flight, but to come right to him and listen. And in that place of listening in church is where Jesus is here. He's truly here teaching us, preaching to us, speaking his word to you. And he just wants you to listen. But he doesn't just express his authority within the church. He expresses his authority in your very soul. When Jesus preaches and teaches, he's not just trying to put out there a bunch of good information. He's not just preaching about the gospel to a bunch of people. He's preaching the gospel to individuals. And he knows every one of the individuals in that synagogue. He knows them by name. He knows them by heart. He knows you, every one of you, individually, by heart, better than you even know yourself. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I once had a pastor tell me that when members would come out of his church and shake his hand and say, good sermon, pastor, he would know he had failed. And the reason was that he knew that a good sermon wouldn't just make people feel better, but it would challenge them. And a lot of times the good sermon pastor was, well, it was well delivered, it was well organized, and it had a nice happy message at the end. But a truly good sermon would be something where you're shaking the pastor's hand and you say, that sermon made me think, pastor. Or that sermon made me uncomfortable, pastor. Or that sermon really spoke to me. Now, there's a good sermon. Jesus, when he preaches and teaches, when he speaks, he stirs the spirit He stirs the spirit of this man, and Mark is giving us insight into the unseen. What was the man doing there? Did anybody else know about this guy? He's coming to the synagogue every Sabbath. He's praying. He's well known in the community. Didn't anybody know what was going on? How could it be right there in the synagogue? Don't be surprised when the devil is in church. That shouldn't surprise us because he's completely content with letting the world destroy themselves as long as they don't have Christ. But if he can get into a place where Jesus is present, where Jesus is being preached, where the word of God is being heard, well, that's a mission unlike any other. I was having coffee in Panera 
this last week, and as I was studying my sermon text, I overheard somebody just yelling. It was completely on the other end of the restaurant. I heard this voice just in the back of my ear. I even had my headphones on, but it was just steadily getting louder. I could tell there was some argument going on. So I kind of took one earphone out to listen in, and I heard, why won't you just leave me alone? As I listened, I gathered that there was some lady sitting in Panera that was not ordering any food and was not doing anything but basically loitering, probably was talking to herself and so attracted attention. And one of the employees was trying to sit and talk to her to calm her down or maybe tell her that she needed to leave. The more that this person talked to her, the more it riled up she seemed to get. And she was saying things like, well, just call the police then. I'll go to jail. Why won't you just leave me alone? I'm not bothering anyone. When Jesus confronts this spirit in the synagogue in Capernaum, there's an immediate hostility. And part of the reason for that hostility is that this person, this man, he just wants to be left alone. He, he's perfectly fine just going about his daily business of confusion, being lost, causing problems. There's a threefold challenge that the Spirit offers back to Jesus. The first is, it's none of your business. That's the first one. This is the Spirit saying that Jesus has no business there. What, do you, what have you to do with us? Why are you here? This is none of your business. The first response is hostility. It's where sin is trying to argue that God has no business in their space. It's my time. It's my body. It's my choice. Entitlement is at the core of every rebellion, and it's in every one of us. An entitlement that says, it's nobody's business what I'm doing, and that includes God whether you say it or not. Ultimately, uh, we think we're doing just fine on our own. The second challenge is, you've come to destroy us. Now, this is the response of contempt. It's the response of the spirits when they're trying to make an argument that God is unfair. God is unfair. He's come to destroy things. He's not good. Jesus is not good. You just come here to ruin everything. And how many times does contempt catch us off guard and get us caught up in unfairness. People who are truly led to a hardened heart have a process of blaming and blaming and blaming until that blame is against God. And God is the one we have contempt for because he's ultimately behind everything. And the third argument is, I know who you are. Now, this is the ultimate blow of power. It's this spirit trying to assert knowledge over who Jesus is. 
something that nobody else in the synagogue had yet discovered or was ready to acknowledge, was this spirit knew more. Stop pretending, Jesus. We know who you are. You're not just a man. You're something more. You're the Holy One of God. And in doing so, the Spirit's trying to provoke a religious debate about knowledge, about who God is, about trying to claim that they've been in the presence of holiness and they know what it is. Why doesn't Jesus get into a religious debate with this man? He doesn't. He knows the answer is not to get into an argument. The answer is not to run away. But instead, he just commands that that spirit should be gone. Shut up! Maybe it was more calm than that. Be quiet and don't let the door hit you on the way out. Whether you do it with enthused strength or quiet and calm control, the devil has no power where Jesus is commanding other things. We can do that too. We can tell Satan to shut up. Now, I know in some households like mine growing up, we weren't allowed to say that. But in this one, I'll make an exception that we can all say, shut up, Satan. So I want you to say it together with me on three. One, two, three. Shut up, Satan. He does not like that. But this is where Jesus does amazing things. When Jesus does amazing things, it's not always pleasant. In fact, when you call out Satan like we just did, don't expect things to get better. Things get worse before they get better when it comes to sin and evil. The man convulses. In other words, the spirit is unwilling to let go. He's unwilling to submit and respond to Jesus willingly. It has to come out with violence. Have you ever seen Satan have such a stronghold in somebody's life that it is very painful? It's earth-shaking. It's soul-shaking before he'll let go. Because he doesn't want to let go of any one of us. When he gets a place in there, it's not pleasant for Jesus to confront it. But for us, we simply need to let Jesus take over. Let him take charge. Don't think you can do it on your own. Don't think it's something that's your responsibility to tough out. Instead, let Jesus take charge. He's in control. He's the boss in this church and in yourself. And now spilling over into all the places around you. Because that amazement that they experience in the synagogue doesn't stay there. It spills over, it says, into all the surrounding regions so that his fame grows. Jesus reveals God's amazing presence. If you've ever been through an encounter like that, where you know you're dealing with something more than flesh and blood, you know it's unsettling. And although it is amazing, 
it's also a little disturbing. And the word that it uses to describe the crowd's reaction is not just amazed as in excited with wonder, but amazed means trembling as well. Awestruck. Not every encounter with God is going to be filled with fireworks, but it doesn't mean it's any less amazing when Jesus visits us with his word. Part of the problem is we don't know how to be amazed. We're just too easily amused to be amazed. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in The Weight of Glory, where he said that human beings are just too easily pleased. He writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. All of the things that sin promises us as far as pleasure and desire and fulfillment are all shortcomings. They're all letdowns. They're not real pleasure. It's not real desire. Sin keeps us from real desire and real beauty. When it comes to lust, lust keeps us from being amazed by beauty. When it comes to anger, anger keeps us from being amazed by trust. When it comes to worry, worry keeps us from being amazed by God's providential care. But when Jesus commands and he takes hold, we start to be amazed. You have to let him in and watch how he will amaze you in little ways and big ways. And when he starts to reach those places where you find out there's more to life than this humdrum mud pies that we're always making, it starts to spill over and people notice. These are the places in Galilee where people are going. And when they get back to their neighbors, their neighbors can tell something's different about this guy that just went to synagogue. Your co-workers can see something's not quite the same. Your spouse can see you're not responding the same way you used to. And it's because Jesus is amazing you. And when they look at you, they say, you're not from around here, are you? I was speaking with my son's coach and his wife. My son, Adam, his coach had to have knee surgery during the season. He said it was poorly timed. And so he asked me to take over for a couple practices and coach a game. I was chatting with the coach and his wife about where I was from, where they were from. Of course, he was from down south, but his wife was from up north. And she said, you know, I thought I knew you might be from up north. I noticed that Minnesota nice in you. And then as her husband started quoting the movie Fargo and said, yeah, oh, I, know, I know what that's like. I, I, I've seen that movie Fargo, so yeah, I know what the North is like. I didn't know if I was being complimented or insulted. 
it kind of made me think of if I'd responded and said, oh yeah, I know where you're from. I've seen the movie Forrest Gump. <laughs> These are the places in our lives where people notice you're not from around here. You've been amazed by Jesus. But only in this story, you're not going to be the ref on the court, taking control with your authority. You're not the coach on the sideline that's telling everyone else what to do. And you're not the fan in the stands who's just shouting for amusement and personal gratification. No, in this story, you're the player on the court. And maybe you need to find a little more play in your daily life. Because one thing I was reminded of this weekend is, you remember when basketball used to be fun? Find those places in your life where things are still fun. Stop being so serious and watch Jesus as you listen to him in the church, as he confronts you within your own heart, and as he spreads his good news to all the places around you. Amen. Thank you.